following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. What I want to do this morning is um, look at a passage in the Bible that, that may not seem on the face of it to have anything to do with Easter at all. And I know it's Easter Sunday, I haven't forgotten. Uh, and usually what we would do today is look at a passage directly on the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus. But I want to come at it slightly differently this morning and uh, just take a slightly different road to, to the same destination. We've been in this series on Genesis for a few months, uh, looking at, at the early chapters, early stories of the Bible, some of the individuals, some of the families that were among the earliest people to live on the earth and, and the way God related to them, um, the way that they journeyed with God. And I want to come back to uh, that series this morning, in a sense. I want to come back to that book of the Bible, back to the book of Genesis, and look at a passage in the book of Genesis. And it might seem like this passage, just to read it, doesn't have any connection at all to what we're doing at Easter time. doesn't seem to have any connection to Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. But I promise you, if we stay with this, if we will just sit with this passage for a while this morning, then the connections will become clear. And there are some deep and profound connections between the story and the Easter story. But we just have to sit with it. We have to work with it for a little while. So that's, uh, that's what we're going to do. And so we're going to be in the book of Genesis, back in Genesis. If you brought a Bible this morning, uh, it'd be great to follow along. It's a story that spans almost a whole chapter in Genesis chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. The words are going to be on the screen, and so you can follow along there. Or there are some Bibles at the back if you want to race down and grab one. But either way, if you can follow along with the story one way or another, that'd be great. And Brianna DeQuant is going to come and read this for us. Thanks, Bree. So uh, Genesis 22 is where we'll be. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it 
as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sea, sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. So this is a bit of a uh, disturbing story, isn't it? It's a fairly troubling story. It's a pretty confronting kind of story in the Bible. Uh, it's one that has fascinated people for a lot of centuries. Uh, people have wrestled with this. It's, it's made its way into popular culture in, in different forms. Bob Dylan wrote a song about this story. You might not know that. He wrote a song, Highway 61 Revisited. And the first verse of that song is based on this story. It's uh, the story of Abraham and Isaac out on Highway 61. And um, I thought that was fascinating, even more fascinating when you think that Bob Dylan's father was called Abraham. So it's, it's this kind of eerie thing where, where Dylan is placing himself in the role of Isaac in the story, and his dad is Abraham. It's kind of creepy. Uh, but people have wrestled, people that have looked at this story have wrestled with it. It's a tough story to, to try and make sense of. Uh, there's a philosopher called Soren Kierkegaard, and uh, he wrestled hard with the story. He looked at it intensely. And he tried to, to find meaning in this story. And what he came up with was the idea that ultimately he said, the story points towards God being cruel, uh, God being capricious, God being arbitrary. He just, he just could not worship a God who would ask a father to do this, who would ask a father to sacrifice his own son. He, he couldn't get his head around that. And he said, ultimately, this is just such a negative picture of God. And, and he wrote it off. On that basis. But at least Kierkegaard said, you know, if you're going to read this story, if you're going to listen to this, you need to enter into what he called the fear and trembling of the story. He said, you better wrestle with it. You better struggle with it and try and find some meaning in the story for yourself. So that's what we'll do. I want to just walk through this story with you and uh, try and get inside it a little bit, try and imagine it. Uh, we don't get a lot of details of exactly how people were experiencing the story, but I want us to try and experience it and imagine it, and then we'll draw some connections from the story through to the Easter story and then through to our own lives today, okay? So as you look there in, in uh, chapter 22, the story kind of starts innocently enough. Uh, it starts with God calling Abraham, and God says, Abraham. Uh, Abraham's just going about his, his own life. God appears to him one day, and Abraham says, here I am, God. Uh, Abraham had had many conversations with God up to this point, and uh, so he was kind of used to this, used to these just appearances of God. And most of the time, all the time, these, these conversations were full of encouragement, and they were full of blessing, and they were full of God making all these promises to Abraham and telling him how wonderful things were going to be for him. And so he probably expected that things were going to be more or less the same. Uh, but then God says to him, makes this incredible request, and says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. And really, that verse is supposed to just stop us dead in our tracks. That, that is supposed to just hit us like a ton of bricks, to read that, to read those words coming out of God's mouth. That, that is shocking. 
And in view of everything we've read so far about God, that should be absolutely shocking for us to read that. It's not that child sacrifice itself was uncommon. Tragically, it was fairly common in these days. People did offer children. It was an awful thing. It happened in various religions. But never this God. That's not who this God was. It's not who Yahweh was. It's not who the God of the Old Testament was. It's not who the God of the Bible was. So for God to ask this, for God to make this request of Abraham is just unbelievable, is incredibly confronting, incredibly disturbing. And you think at this point, you know, Abraham and Sarah, they only had one son. They only had Isaac. They, they, they were unable to have kids for many, many years. And then finally, God promised them a child and against all the odds, gave them a child. They only had Isaac. And God promised that it was going to be through Isaac that all of his promises would come about. It was going to be through Isaac that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It was through Isaac that generations of people would come to call God Father. It was through Isaac the whole nation of Israel would eventually come about. The entire rest of the biblical story all hangs on this child, this boy. It all hinges on him. And now God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to take your boy and I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Now, the way that the, tor- the story is told in Genesis uh, is with real brevity. We, we just don't get the emotion. We don't, we're not told uh, how Abraham reacted to that, how Abraham responded to that. We have to imagine it. You have to imagine what this would have been like for Abraham as a father, what he would have felt, the anger that he would have felt towards God. You know, God having made all these promises to Abraham, Abraham having had so much faith, having obeyed, and yet now... It's like God's making a mockery of the whole thing. It's like God's just burning everything down. Imagine the heartache. Just imagine the anguish of a father being asked to do this. It's unbelievable. But the next thing that we're told in the story is that the next morning, Abraham gets up early and he gets on his way. In spite of everything he's feeling, in spite of everything that's going through his head, he obeys. And some people think Abraham got up early the next morning to get started because he just wanted to get this over and done with as quick as he could. Uh, It may be that Abraham got up the next morning so that Sarah would never know what he was about to do. And you try reliving the story, by the way, from Sarah's perspective and just imagine what all this was like for her. But either way, we don't know. Abraham got up early. He saddled up the donkey. He got a couple of servants. He took Isaac, loaded up the provisions and the supplies, and off they went. And it was about a three-day journey to the place where they could see this, this mountain that God had designated where the sacrifice was to take place, Mount Moriah. So they got within eyesight of it, and then Abraham said to his servants, right, you, you stay here, and the boy and I will go and worship, and we'll come back to you. And it's interesting, isn't it, the way Abraham puts that? That he says, we will go and worship, and we will come back to you. And maybe even at this point, he's hoping. He's hoping that he doesn't have to go through with this. He's hoping that, that God is going to spare him. Or maybe he's just trying to lift everybody's spirits. We don't know. But, but he says, we, we will come back. And so him and Isaac go on from that point, And they start the long climb up Mount Moriah. And Isaac's carrying the wood on his back. And Abraham's got the provisions for the fire. And as they're going up uh, the, uh, the mount, Isaac turns to his dad and he says, Father, uh, the, the wood is here, and, and, and you've got the supplies for the fire, but where is the lamb? And, you know, Isaac would have seen his father make sacrifices at different times and slaughter animals for animal sacrifices, so he knew the drill. 
he recognized what was going on, and one thing he didn't see was the animal. There's no lamb. There's no goat. What's going on, Dad? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb, my son. And you imagine how difficult it must have been for Abraham to say those words. You know, I'm a father of three young boys, and I can barely even go there emotionally just to think what that would have been like for him, what that conversation on the way up the mountain must have been like, all that Abraham must have been feeling, the pleading with God that must have gone on for him. Surely there's another way. Surely there's a way out of this. Surely we can do this differently. The heartache, the utter gut-wrenching, sickening feeling that he would have had as he got to the top of that mountain. And then Abraham builds an altar out of whatever he could find, whatever supplies he had or, or rock, stone, whatever was there. And he puts the wood on top of the altar. And then he binds his son Isaac to the top of the altar with ropes so he couldn't escape. And he takes the knife ready to sacrifice his son. And Abraham raises the knife ready to do this terrible thing. And at the very, very last second, the voice from heaven calls out, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham again says, here I am. Same thing he'd said at the beginning of the story. And the voice from heaven, sometimes it's described as the angel of the Lord. Sometimes it's just described as God himself, says, don't lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you trust me. Now I know that you fear me. And you think, you know, Abraham in that moment, what would that have been like? He drops the knife. He drops to his knees. Just the waves of relief that must have come over him at that point. I mean, the, the, the emotional turbulence of going through that moment of being about to take the life of his own son and then being spared from that at the very, very last second and then realizing he didn't have to do this, that Isaac could be saved, Isaac's life could be spared, the relief the incredible gratitude that he must have had. It's almost more than any human being can handle. Just those extremes of emotions compressed into a, into a small time frame. And Abraham just would have been kneeling there in the dust, Isaac still on the altar, Abraham trying to process everything that's gone on, just all of these emotions swirling through his being. It would have been an unbelievable experience. And then Abraham looks up and he sees in the thicket a ram caught by its horns in the bushes. He goes over and takes the ram. He lets Isaac go, takes the, takes the ropes away, unbinds Isaac. So Isaac's released and he gets the ram. He slaughters the ram. He lays it on the altar and he offers up the ram as a sacrifice. And you think, man, what, what must it have been like then for Abraham and Isaac to be standing there and watching that sacrifice, watching that fire burn? You think, what, what would have been going through their mind at that point? That was just about to be Isaac. It was seconds away from being Abraham's son. And we're told that Abraham called that mountain, Mount Moriah. He renamed it and called it, The Lord Will Provide. And that's where we get one of the, the names of God in the Old Testament, one of the great names of God, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider. Comes from that story. Comes from that encounter that Abraham and Isaac had on, on Mount Moriah. The Lord will provide. And can you imagine the conversation? among father and son on the way back down the mountain and what they might have talked about 
and what they might have reflected on about who this God was. And they were just beginning to get to know God. I mean, we've got the whole Bible now. We, we know a lot more about God, but they were just starting to get to know this God and what He was like and just imagine the conversations. You know, We teach our kids the Bible stories because they're written in the Bible. These guys talk to each other having experienced this firsthand. Isaac being on the brink of death, Abraham being on the brink of offering his own son like that. And now they're processing this together. Imagine the conversation about who this God was, Jehovah Jireh, and the way that God provided this ram so that Isaac didn't have to die. Imagine the conversation about God's faithfulness. This God is faithful to his promises in spite of everything, against all the odds in the most incredible situations of darkness and blackness and bleakness. God is faithful and he does fulfill his promise. And what God ultimately wants is not death, Isaac. It's life. God wants us to live. He wants us to have life, and he wants us to bring blessing. What an amazing teaching moment that would have been for Isaac. And so they go down and rejoin the others at the camp and head off home. It's an extraordinary story. And even just reliving it now, there's a lot of emotion, and it's intense. And when you really enter into it, it it is a full-on story. But the really powerful thing about this story is when you place it into the context of the whole biblical story. I mean, on its own, it's incredible. But this story is designed to be read in the context of the whole biblical story. And you can draw a line directly from that story about Abraham and Isaac right through to the events we're celebrating this weekend, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Because when you think about it, you come back to Genesis 22, when God asked Abraham to take the life of his son, what Abraham didn't know, could not, could not have known, is that God too was a father. Abraham didn't know that about God, but God was a father. God is a father. God has a son. His name is Jesus. And he's the only begotten son of the father. In fact, the language that's used in Genesis 22 to describe Isaac as the son of Abraham and the language that's used in the New Testament to describe Jesus, the son of God, is very similar. You notice the way God talks to Abraham here. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. It's like he's compounding the phrases to add this intensity to it. And then you think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, or his one and only son. It's the same kind of language. God had a son. He has a son. Jesus is the only son, the only child of the Father. So he is this precious and prized possession of our Heavenly Father. And just like all God's promises hung on that son Isaac, all the promises of God hinge on Jesus. And when God asked Abraham to make that sacrifice, when he asked him to do that, God already knew that thousands of years later, he would do the same thing, that he would sacrifice his son. Now that changes the story for me, knowing that was already in the father's mind. That was already in the mind of God. When he asked Abraham to do this, God knew full well he, as a father, was planning to do the same thing. So as Abraham and Isaac walked to Mount Moriah, God sent Jesus to Calvary. In fact, do you know another name for Mount Moriah? Mount Zion. It's another name for the same place. You know where Mount Zion is? It's the mount that Jerusalem's built on. It's not really a mountain. It's more just a hilly kind of, kind of area. It's exactly the same place where Jesus died. It's exactly the same spot. Come on, that's incredible. 
You know that this was in the mind of God when he asked Abraham to go to that space. He picked the same patch of dirt that God the Father was going to sacrifice his own son upon thousands of years later. Can you see what God is doing here? This is so much bigger than the Abraham and Isaac story. God's getting us ready for something here. He's telling another story, much, much bigger than the Abraham story. So Jesus was crucified on Mount Moriah. He was crucified on Mount Zion. As Isaac walked up that hill, carrying the wood for the altar on his back, Jesus walked up the long road to Golgotha, carrying the wood on his back. Except this wood was shaped like a cross. But he carried the instrument of his own demise, just as Isaac did. They got to the top of the hill and Isaac was bound with ropes to the altar. Jesus was bound with nails to the cross. But there, the stories diverge. Because there's one critical difference between the two stories, isn't there? At the very last minute with Isaac, what happened? The voice from heaven. Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. And Abraham stays his hand. With Jesus, at the very last moments, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And from heaven, there's silence. There is no voice. There is no intervention. There is no last-minute rescue. And so Jesus says, it, it is finished. And with a final last heaving breath, he gives up his spirit. Whereas Isaac was spared from death at the very last moment, Jesus died. Jesus entered into death. And it had to be. It had to be that way. There was no other way. In order for that to be a sacrifice that was sufficient to pay for our sin. Because for Isaac... There was a ram. There was a ram that could be a substitute. That was a, that was a perfect substitute for the life of that boy. And so the ram took Isaac's place. But with Jesus, there, there, what, there could be no substitute. There could be no animal that stepped in. There, there, an animal would never be a sufficient sacrifice to carry your sin and my sin. There could be no other person that ever stepped in to do that because they would be full of sin themselves. They couldn't even atone for their own sin, let alone ours. It could only be the one who was truly God and truly man. Only that person could make atonement, could be the perfect sacrifice for our sin, for all the things that we have done against God. It had to be Jesus. So whereas the ram was the substitute for Isaac, with Jesus, he was the substitute. He was our substitute. He was the lamb. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He stood in our place. He hung in our place. This is the central heart of the Easter story. It's the central heart of the gospel. It's the central heart of our faith that Jesus was our substitute on that cross. He stood in our place. He died the death you should have died. He suffered and he bled and he died. It should have been us on the cross. It should have been us paying the price. We've all incurred that debt before God because of the ways we've acted so stubbornly, selfishly, and stupidly before God. But it was him. He hung there. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He bore our sin in his body on the cross. He carried it. He carried all of your sin, all of your failure, all of your mistakes, all of your past regrets, all of your future mistakes, all the dumb stuff you're yet to do. He carried that as well 
all of our brokenness and weakness, our flaws and our frailty. He carried it all, every ounce of it for every person who has ever lived. He carried it on the cross and he carried it to the grave. That is why we say Jehovah Jireh, our provider. When we call God that, we don't primarily call him Jehovah Jireh because he meets our needs every day. We call him that because we look at the cross and we see that there he made the ultimate provision for our needs. That was the ultimate provision. That's why he's Jehovah Jireh. The greatest need you have is not for daily bread. The greatest need you have is not for your immediate situation to be resolved. The greatest need you have is for your sin and guilt before a holy God to be dealt with. The greatest need that you have is for your culpability before God to be dealt with somehow, for the burden of sin that you are carrying to be dealt with before God. And that's exactly what God has provided in Jesus. That's Easter. That's the gospel. That's Jehovah Jireh. He's carried that. He's taken that away. That is why we call him that great name, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. He has provided the lamb who has taken away your sin and my sin. And then at the end, these two stories, you see, they come back together. They converge again at the end where these two fathers, Abraham and God the father, both receive back their sons. For Abraham, he received Isaac back from the brink of death, almost lost him, and then he gets him back. Jesus, he goes through death and out the other side. And this is what we celebrate this morning, Resurrection Sunday, that on the third day, Jesus walked out of the grave. He was raised from the dead, and God the Father was restored to his own son. No longer God forsaken, no longer estranged and separated, but the father receives the son back. I think one of the beautiful things about the story is the way it shows us what it might have been like for God the Father to go through Easter. You know, we think about what Jesus means for us and what he's done for us and how his sin affects us, and that's wonderful. But this story takes you into the heart of God and the grief that God the Father felt on Good Friday, watching his son suffer and bleed and die. And then the story shows you the relief and, and, and the joy that God the Father felt. And yes, it was God the Father who raised him from the dead, but it doesn't mean he didn't feel all the relief of doing it. And the celebration and the joy as father and son were reunited again. And so you have in the end a story of two fathers who both give their sons and then receive them back. It's a beautiful symmetry between those two stories. And it really points us towards the Easter story. That's why I tell the story to you this morning, because the story can become so familiar. We talk about the death of Jesus. We talk about the resurrection of Jesus. But I think the story of Abraham and Isaac just has a way of opening up that story afresh for us and giving us a perspective that maybe we didn't otherwise have on what's really going on, what was really going on in the events of Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday. And I think it helps us understand the story of Abraham and Isaac, because if you just stay with Genesis 22... It is a difficult story to understand. And you can understand why Kierkegaard said this just portrays God as being capricious and malevolent and unkind. But when you see the story in view of where it's heading, in view of its fulfillment in Jesus, then you can see the story doesn't reveal to us a God who is cruel. It reveals to us a God who is driven by unbelievable love to sacrifice his own son for us for you and for me. It was the love of the Father for you that drove him to do that. It's because he desired that much to have you be one of his children that he went through the anguish of the cross. 
And when you see the story connected to the story of Easter, you see this, this is not a God who's just arbitrary. It's not a God who just doesn't know what he's doing. He's all over the map. It's a God who is incredibly purposeful, who had this all planned out, who knew millennia before Jesus what was going on. And he, and he took Abraham through that whole experience in order to witness to what was coming, in order to show us something about Jesus, something about the death of Jesus, something about the resurrection of Jesus. The story doesn't portray God as being capricious and unkind, but as incredibly loving, devoted to us, and committed to us, and totally in control. So that story in Genesis 22 has a wonderful way, I think, of giving us a window into the Easter story, a new way of appreciating what it was for the Father to sacrifice His Son for us. And you know, the thing is that Genesis 22, it shows us God as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provided. He provided for Abraham, provided for Isaac. And we see God's ultimate provision of Jesus on the cross. We see him again as Jehovah Jireh. But he wasn't just Jehovah Jireh back then, was he? He wasn't just Jehovah Jireh at Easter time either. But he continues to be Jehovah Jireh today. That's who he is today. It's not just who he was. It's not just something he did way back then. This is at the heart of the nature of God. He is Jehovah Jireh. And just as he provided for Abraham and Isaac, and just as he provided Jesus for us, he continues to provide for us today. He continues to be our provider in the present. It's in fact, because you can look back at the cross and you can say, I know that God has met my greatest need there. I know that God has provided the ultimate sacrifice for my sin. That's the greatest provision. Because I can look at that, that's what gives me the confidence to know that no matter what I go through in the present, in any situation, any circumstance, any struggle, any trial, when your back is up against any wall, in any adversity, you will know God as your provider because you can look back at the cross and know that's where he proved it. That's where he showed just how far he was willing to go to provide for your greatest need. And he will continue to provide today. It doesn't mean he's going to rush in and solve every problem. It doesn't mean he's going to fix all of your immediate circumstances. You know, you think about Abraham. He, he allowed Abraham to walk up Mount Moriah, didn't he? He could have stepped in earlier. Could have, I bet Abraham wished he had stepped in earlier, provided the ram just a little bit earlier. It would have been good, God. Do you have to leave it to the last second? But he allowed Abraham to walk up Mount Moriah. He, in his infinite wisdom, we don't know exactly why, but he allowed Abraham to go through the agony of that walk with Isaac up Mount Moriah. And you know, God will allow you to walk up your own Mount Moriah too. He will allow you to go through those times. It's not because he, he wants to see you suffer. It's not because he, he gets some enjoyment out of that, but he will allow you to go through those times of anguish. There'll be times where you experience your own Mount Moriah and you go through the worst that life can throw at you and you feel that pain, you feel that anguish and that grief and that heartache and that stress and that struggle. Some of you might be there today walking up your own Mount Moriah. But what God showed is that all the way up the mountain and at the end of the story, he was faithful and he did provide. He was Jehovah Jireh all the way through. This is what God promises to you. Even when you walk up Mount Moriah, you go through unbelievable suffering. People in your family go through incredible suffering. God, all the way through, and in the end, He is Jehovah Jireh. And when our strength fails, and we're absolutely at the end of ourselves, we've got nothing left in our tank to carry on. 
God will provide. He will provide the strength that you need. He will provide the resources of heaven to keep you going, that you can put one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, and carry on in the strength of God. When we have no hope, when you look at the future and you just feel like it's bleak, you just feel like there's just nothing good waiting for you, you just feel like your situation is hopeless, God will lift up your, your eyes if you allow him to and provide hope and provide a future for you. And provide a perspective on the future where you can see new possibilities and you can see new doors opening and you can see that God's going to surprise you with his kindness. He's going to surprise you with new blessings in the years ahead, even if you can't see it now, but he will provide that for you. You know, in those times of incredible anxiety, you feel full of worry, you're full of stress about what's going on and what's coming up in those times, God will provide. He will provide his peace. He will pour his peace into your heart. doesn't mean it's going to take away the anxiety. I've had times of incredible anxiety, and it doesn't mean the anxiety goes, but the best way I can describe it is it transforms the experience of anxiety when you invite God into it. And suddenly it's a different experience because Jesus is with you. You invite him into it, and he's part of it with you. The, the anxiety may remain, but you experience it differently somehow. Because Jesus is right there in the middle of it with you. In those times you feel incredibly lonely, you feel abandoned, you feel like you're totally on your own, God will provide. He will provide the greatest gift of all. He'll provide his presence. That's really what he has purchased on the cross. That's the heart of the Easter story is his own presence. The greatest gift that he gives you when you're walking up Mount Moriah is not to solve your problems. It's the gift of himself. It's the gift of his presence to lead you and to guide you and to comfort you and to strengthen you when you are feeling weak, when you're at the end of yourself, when you're just overcome with your own inadequacies. Then God shows up as Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides out of his abundance, out of his riches, he provides for us in our incredible emptiness. And what he asks us is really the same thing that he asked Abraham, he turns to us and says, so will you trust me? And that's really, that's what the whole story was for Abraham, right? It was, it was that question, do you trust me, Abraham? Because we can trust him with our words, we can trust him as we sing the worship songs and whatever, but it's a different thing to trust him with our lives. It's a different thing to trust him with our circumstances. It's certainly a different thing to, to trust him with the things that are most precious to us, as Abraham had to do. But that's what God asks you. In the middle of whatever challenge you're going through, do you trust me? Do, are you willing to trust me beyond just what your eyes can see? That's what Abraham had to figure out. Are you willing to trust me beyond just the circumstances, even when things seem confusing, even when things seem contradictory, even when you feel like God's gone back on himself and broken promises and, and, and where is he and I can't feel him and he seems to have abandoned me? Even then, are you willing to trust him? Even when you can't feel his presence, even when he seems a million miles away, are you willing in those moments to say, I still trust you? I still believe, in spite of my circumstances, that you are with me, that you are faithful, and that you are Jehovah Jireh. You are my God, and you will provide. There's a woman named Annie Flint, who was a, a hymn writer and uh, a poet in the early 20th century. She was a, as a young girl, she dreamed of being a concert pianist, and was a very talented musician. Um, loved writing poetry, but in her early 20s, she developed rheumatoid arthritis. Her fingers began to curl in. She could no longer play the piano. Eventually, it riddled her whole body, 
her body became contorted and twisted up, nailed up, and she was she spent many subsequent decades just bedridden, couldn't couldn't move very much, couldn't hold a pen in her hand to write the letters that she used to write, write the songs and the poems. She couldn't even get a pen into her swollen hands. She developed cancer in her internal organs. She was incontinent. She began to go blind. She suffered immensely by the end of her life. She needed eight pillows in her bed just to cushion her body. It was so full of bed sores. And by the time she died, she had shrunk to just four feet tall. She never really saw any respite from her suffering during her lifetime. She died in 1932. But before she died, she wrote a hymn. And I want to read you the words as we close today. He gives more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sends more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary, known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, but the day is half done, When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limits, His grace has no measure, His power no boundary known unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. There's a woman who knew what it was to suffer. She walked up her own Mount Moriah, full of pain, physically and emotionally. But it was in the midst of that suffering. She found God to be exactly who he said he'd be, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. And I don't know where you're at this morning. Some of you may be going through unbelievable difficulties. And for some of you, life's going really, really well. And probably most of you are somewhere in the middle. There's always good things and there's always bad things. We're often a real mixed bag, aren't we? But I do know one thing to be true. Wherever you are, God is and will be for you, Jehovah Jireh. He will give you more grace. He'll give you more mercy. He'll give you more strength. He'll give you more peace. He'll give you more and more of his presence. And all he asks is that you trust him, is that you open your heart to him and stop running away, but run towards him. Stop pushing him away, but open your heart. Stop turning your face away from him, but turn towards him and trust him, not just with your words, but with your life. And as you do, you will find him to be exactly who this story shows him to be, Jehovah Jireh the Lord who provides. So may you know the God of Abraham this Easter, the God of Isaac, the God who provided the ram. May you know more and more the God of Jesus, the God who provided the ultimate, all-sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice for your sins. And may you know more every day the God who is with you now, in the present, alongside you, carrying you, who will carry you forward into all of your tomorrows. And may you know him to be Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, your provider. The Lord bless you and keep you. Let's pray. God, it's hard to know how to respond to that story and to all that you've done for us. We just open our hearts to you, God. We open our lives to you. We thank you that you are the God who provides God, we just know that our faith is so weak. We wish we had the faith of Abraham. So often we don't. We wish we could trust you more, but so often we struggle to. Father, we thank you that when we are weak, you are still strong. 
And when we are just bound up in guilt and shame, you come to us in kindness and grace and freedom. So, Lord, would you come to us now? Would you come to us in in all of your mercy and just wherever we're at, Lord, would you touch our hearts? Would you just pour your grace, the grace that you showed through Jesus 2,000 years ago? We thank you that grace is still here and it's available to us today. So would you pour your grace afresh into each of our hearts? Lord, you know the stories that are here this morning. You know each person. You know, Lord Jesus, the, the hearts that are broken. You know the hearts that are full. You know each person and you know the struggles and the joys. And Father, I pray you'd meet each one just where they're at. Be their provider. Be their Lord. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455 Thank you for listening.